am talking with Garry Kasparov, the former world chess champion, perhaps the most famous of modern times, and now a great critic of Vladimir Putin's Russia, and a great critic of the failures of American and European foreign policy with respect to Russia. Needless to say, this is a very timely conversation, given the man who will soon occupy the Oval Office and given the people he is appointed to advise him. And so without further preamble, I give you Gary Kasparov. I am here with Gary Kasparov. Gary, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for inviting me. Listen, it's, it's a really an honor to get to talk to you. I'm sorry we can't do it in person, but we will be forgiven any audio hiccups here. We're doing this by Skype, and you are half a world away, and it's late at night over there. So again, thank you for taking the time to do this. Okay. That's thanks for modern technology that we can do it, you know, staying um, thousand miles away from each other. Yeah. There's a lot to talk about. There, there are really two broad areas that I want to touch with you. The, the first I want to get into is politics, obviously and the recent Russian influence on our presidential election. The second is that we have to say something about the future of intelligent machines, because I've been talking a lot about artificial intelligence on the podcast. And while you will go down in history for many things, one of those things will be that you were the first person to be beaten by a machine in an intellectual pursuit where you were the most advanced member of our species. You will have a special place in history, even if that history is written by our, our robot overlords. We have to talk about that, but we, we'll get into politics first. And you've written a, a fascinating book entitled Winter is Coming. You argue several things in the book, but generally you claim that, that free and open societies like our own have grown weaker, especially because we no longer think in terms of spreading our values to the rest of the world. Many people consider this a, a return to some kind of humility and political realism, but you consider it a failure of nerve. And I must say, I, I agree with you there. Your specific claim is that while we're now facing many threats and, and many which we seem ill-prepared to deal with, the worst of these threats is coming from Vladimir Putin and his current Russia. So perhaps you can just start there with your, your political thesis. Yes, uh, let's start with the title of the book, Winter's Coming. Yeah, I have to confess I'm a fan of Game of Thrones mm -hmm. and I even read all the books. And I thought the title was very appropriate because it could indicate two things. One is that the history you know, is not developed you know, uh, on a linear basis. And it was somehow a delayed response to Francis Fukuyama, The End of History in 1992, the best-selling book. Um, and I have to you know, admit that in 1992, I shared the same optimism, thinking that liberal democracies have won and the rest would be you know, um, just a bright future. So it's all, all for, up to us to, to build this future and the evil um, has been defeated once and for all. So I think we, you know, we, we yet to recognize that, you know, the evil doesn't disappear. So it probably happens in, in the books, in fairy tales, but in real life, the evil, you know, could be buried temporarily under the rubbles of Berlin Wall. But, you know, at one point it uh, sprouts out, especially if we lose our vigilance and we, if we turn to be complacent. Um, and also the idea of the title was, again, reflecting the the, uh, the motto of the House of Stark in, in, in Game of Thrones is, is to indicate that this is not a winter, this is not a climate change, this is not this change of temperature, but this is something that happens again because we are grown weaker. 
because we don't um, understand the threat that is, is is coming to hurt us and maybe to do to, to destroy our our way of life. But it depends on us whether this winter is long or short, whether it's you know devastating or the effect is is minimal. So it, it's it's like a warning. So that's why I thought the title would be appropriate. And you know, to my surprise, and I publish a few books, and Sam, I'm sure you know, the publishers they always come up with ten different suggestions, mm-hmm. trying to 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 to, to um, uh, shoot away your original title. I mean, this time they accepted the title, you know, recognizing that you know it had merits, uh, but they were very cautious and they almost rejected the subtitle. Mm. They said, "Oh, Vladimir Putin and the enemies of the free world." Is it about in you know, a cold war? Is this a, just you know old language that may you know scare people off? I said, yeah, it's a cold war because winter is coming. And uh, now when I talk to my publisher, they're very happy that they, they actually agreed to have Vladimir Putin and Emma to the free world. I can imagine yeah. <laughs> on the title of the book, <laughs> because when they asked me, so what about the you know what about advertising? How are you going to do it? Because it was really you know just you know a very short cycle. For writing and publishing, we, um, me and Meg Gringer, my co-author, so we approached them in January 2015, and uh, um, I said I, I said at our first meeting that I would like the book to be published in October. They asked me whether I meant October 2016. I said no, 2015, because I hoped that the book would make difference for for uh, upcoming presidential elections, and it could you know help to shape debates on foreign policy between two between candidates from the major parties. So, and they were not sure that you can do it because they said, oh, you know, we have, we, we, there's no time for advertising. And I said, look, as long as you have Putin in, 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 as a centerpiece of the book, he will definitely create enough, you know, conflicts, you know, to make sure that the book will be always, you know, uh, uh, um, on the front page. Mm, yeah. uh, again, unfortunately, this, this, this prediction was right. And uh, I have to say that, you know, things that I predicted in the book, you know, um, they turned to be even worse. Than I than I thought, uh, because probably we live in a time when you know everything happens much quicker, so the time flies faster than it used to be. I would just want to stop you there, Gary, for a second, because I want to get into Putin specifically in some depth. But you use this term "evil," which I want to flag for a moment, because unfortunately, this term has been really undermined in intelligent conversation. Many people just don't believe in evil. Sam, it's such a great point, you know. Thank you very much for actually raising this point because, you know, um, if we are look, if if we are now look at the at, at American politics, you know, the the partisanship it reached such a level where you know people from different from 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 two major parties consider their opponents evil. So, and you're right, you know, the word evil, you know, has been used uh, and overused in the political debates between people who. You know, who disagree on many issues, but still share the same the same core values. Mm. You know, it's the they all you know represent different you know wings of liberal democracy. And what I wanted to emphasize in the book, and again, thanks for raising this point, is that you know we are we are uh, we are being uh, um, uh, we are being attacked by people that are again. Let me use this old cliche. Cold War cliche, the enemies of the free world, because they did not share the same values. And one of the fundamental differences between us and them is we believe, you know, in the uniqueness of of uh, of human life. So the one person dead, you know, it's tragedy. For people like Putin, you know, hundreds of thousands dead is just, you know, it's a demonstration of strengths. It's just statistics that proves that, you know, they they are on the winning streak by, you know, by by spreading their influence. So. Um, we, we we have to realize that you know 
you know, despite all the differences between, you know, different political groups and activists in, in the free world, we're still united by, by values that, that, that makes us very different from the other side of the world where, you know, I could apply world, world evil because it really threatens the, 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 the way, of, way of life, you know, the, the very foundation of the, of the free society. And value of human life is one of the, one of the things that brings together Putin, ISIS, um, Al-Qaeda, Iranian mullahs, they could look different. But at the end of the day, you know, they, um, they believe in something that is, you know, is not modern, something that, you know, that, you know, brings us, pushes us back to the past. And it's, it's for those who are saying, oh, unlike Soviet Union, Putin's Russia is no longer an existential threat to the free world because it doesn't have the same ideology. My response is that probably you're right, but the Soviet project Though it was, you know, condemned by history, it was, you know, um, uh, uh, marked by by repressions, uh, by by bloodshed, by devaluation of the of uh, of of human life. Um, uh, it was still a project about the future. It was a futuristic project, you know, um, based on 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 wrong assumptions about human nature. That's why it failed. But it was still about the future. While today we're dealing with threats that all are looking for ideal society. In a distant past, so Putin looks for a 19th century imperial politics. Iranian mullahs for you know medieval religious uh, religious uh, inquisition, uh, and ISIS of course goes all the way back to the early caliphate. Mm. But it's all about something that you know just that is that has no connection to to the, to the modernity. And so that's why we could say that today we see the fights you know between modernity uh, and and archaic uh, forces, and somehow even you know. Uh, the last U.S. elections was also about, you know, um, about uh, a desperate attempt to look for uh, an, an ideal model of the past. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Um, and um, that's why, again, I think it's, 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 I thought it would be very important to have the book on time for, for a proper debate about uh, U.S. policy since, you know, foreign policy since, whether we like it or not, United States as a leader of the free world, you know, defines the way the free world moves, you know, um, one way or another. Uh, and unfortunately, you know, um, this election was about, you know, throwing mud at each other rather than talking about serious issues. And um, I, I was quite disappointed, but still, you know, it's probably now, it's now while we're digesting the, the um, surprising results of these elections, we will have time to think about the sort of the, um, the potential impact of um, all these important uh, uh, foreign policy issues to to the life in the United States, especially because it became quite apparent that uh, Putin's influence on the elections, um, even if it was not decisive, it was still a considerable factor that that um, held to tilt the election uh, to the to the Trump side. Yeah, yeah. Well, so before we get into Putin and the election, you've just raised this generic problem we have with dictators, dictators with regimes that fundamentally don't share our values. Just generically speaking, how do you think we should deal with this problem? There's another paradox of, of um, modern times is that um, unlike uh, 50 or 100 years ago, dictators, um, they have almost you know, equal access to modern technologies. Um, so the technological advantage was always, you know, uh, an important factor of uh, of the superiority of the free world because, you know, um, we know that the free society um, always could mobilize, you know, brains and and intellectual resources to come up with 
new ideas, new industries, new technologies, and always to be to be ahead. Mm. Uh, even Soviet Union, you know, um, eventually lost this, the, 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 the space race, though it was, you know, it was not Putin's Russia. It was, you know, the, the country that, that relied on, on uh, resources of Russian empire. So the, the generations of scientists and it's, uh, it was well advanced. So it's, it was quite a unique experiment though failed experiment, and it, it, it managed to put, you know, um, uh, Sputnik and the man in space even ahead of the Americans, but eventually, you know, it, 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 it lost this, this, this race because uh, close societies, they cannot compete. Even the Soviet Union failed to compete with the United States uh, in, in, um, in the technological uh, race. Um, but today, you know, um, things are different because um, the globalization, you know, as every, every new um, Call it technology. Every new technological process has two 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 sides, like every coin. Um, on one side, you know, we can spread things around. You know, we can do business, we can socialize, we can connect people. Many good things can happen by using this this modern device, which is in everybody's pocket or a purse. But at the same time, you know, it helps bad guys to to advance their cause. So you can socialize on you know um, on on the net, but you can also build a very sophisticated terrorist network. And yeah. it just, you know, it's it. And uh, um, dictators, as we can see now, they they feel very comfortable with these modern devices because you know the the internet is not yet regulated. It's something that is, you know, it's uh, is is yet to be to become part of international law. And um, bad guys, they just they don't pay attention to any rules or limitations. So they they have by by definition they have an upper hand in something so new and so advanced. And uh, getting access to this is 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 um, as easy, you know, as as buying, you know, food in the store. So um, it's quite a quite a paradox that um, um, while we relied on on uh, Twitter, Facebook, uh, Google, and all these, you know, new um, brilliant technologies invented in the free world to promote the ideas of the free world, um, we are now seeing the opposite effect that the the dictators, the totalitarian regimes, they are successfully using these tools, very sophisticated tools, for propaganda, to actually promote ideas um, that, are, that are very, uh, that are opposite to, to, to our values. Actually, not even ideas, but more likely fake news. It's more like poisoning minds of people because it's almost impossible uh, to identify what, what's true and what's not since you are receiving so much information. And uh, well-organized forces, you know, uh, um, supported by by massive budgets, uh, as as you know, Putin's Russia. So the propaganda machine, you know, could have a could have a deadly effect not only uh, um, in Russia, not only in the Russian-speaking people around the world, but also to uh, on the minds of people um, in 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 the free world. And this is a paradox that we have to we have to understand and just to you know to recognize that it's 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 a new challenge. And the free world was not ready for it. Mm. Yeah, well, one point you make in your book in several places is that we have pursued a path of engagement with with Putin in particular, but with respect to many regimes that are fundamentally illiberal, on the assumption that mere engagement, mere economic and social integration will moderate these regimes and get them to align with our interests and with the interests of sane and decent people everywhere. And you then observe how foolish this has proved to be. And it's pretty clear that some people only understand strength. And this goes back to this issue of evil, because many people have lost sight of the fact that 
there are people, you know, whether it's individual dictators or even whole cultures or subcultures, certainly, who are committed to very different aims in life. I mean, there are people who are malignantly selfish or just delusional. There are whole cultures that can be organized around delusional ideals. And I think what we're witnessing on our side, especially in recent years under Obama, and I, I say this as, as someone who's a real fan of Obama. I mean, I, th I think he's an extremely smart and ethical and thoughtful person. And, and the contrast to the incoming president here is just appalling to me. But his foreign policy has been so anemic. It seems that our enemies no longer fear us and our, our friends really can't rely on us. And yet it's easy to see how we got here because there's, there's this perception of just this absolute futility of foreign interventions because of what happened in Afghanistan and Iraq. And those are you know, very different wars, as you know. One was probably necessary and one almost certainly wasn't. But they're both viewed as total failures. And there's this, I think, an agreement, certainly on the left and, and now even on you know, what's now called the alternative right, that a sophisticated and realistic vision of America's place in the world is one where we should be more isolated, more humble, more, I mean, just any notion of us really leading the world and trying to spread our values all the way across it is some kind of unethical claim upon empire. It seems to me that we have lost our sense that there really are right answers to questions of good and evil. There really is such a thing, potentially at least, as universal human values that we have to fight for. Now let's start with this, you know, with your analysis about, you know, American intervention or isolationism as an alternative. Look, it's the 21st century. We are just about entering the year 2017. The globalized um, world is reality. Globalized trade is reality. No matter what president-elect uh, 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 says about trade and uh, his threats to sort of to, um, to turn it around and just, you know, to go back to, you know, to uh, protectionism. I don't believe it's going to happen because America is the most globalized economy. And uh, when you look at the, at, at the United States as a country with 330 million people, the country benefits from global trade. Yes, you know, global trade, as in every trade, as in capitalism, some people win, some lose. But it clearly, you know, when you look at the at the balance, you know, more people, you know, are on the on the on the beneficiary side. So you have to think about sort of softening the blow to others, but trying to change things, you know, and to say, oh, now we can go back, you know, we can, you know, back. It, this is this is exactly what I said, you know, when I talked about, you know, different societies looking for 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 the ideals that that are distant past. So America in 2017 should look in 2030, 2040, 2050, not in not to 1950, 1960. Uh, those certain things, you know, I would, I, I wish country could recover from 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 those decades. Um, and um, trying to hide in a shell, you know, ignore the fact that I mean, someone has to lead. You know, if you create vacuum, and this is you know, this is the biggest lesson of Obama's presidency. You know, he meant well. He wanted to reach out to American enemies. And he just, you know, he, he, he did absolute utmost to remove America, what he thought, you know, was, um, you know, negative American influence in world mm. politics, trying to sort of to um, work through agreements, compromises. Yeah, it's it could be great if he had at the other side of the bargaining table people, uh, institutions, states that shared even 50 percent of his conviction. 
about about um, the world, the uh, the our world should function. Unfortunately, it was not the case. So uh, for Putin and the, and the like, Obama's what they th- saw a uh, flexibility and weakness was an open invitation to spread their influence. America was on retreat, thus creating vacuum, and this vacuum was filled not by forces of peace and prosperity, but by forces of, of war uh, and hatred. Mm. Um, and um, again, there's no simple answer, you know, for, you know, for um, America's role in the world. You know, you, you separated wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, you know, my problem with the war in Iraq, you know, in 2003 was that, you know, as someone who was born and raised in a communist country, I could never blame, could never condemn invasion, even invasion that led to a, to, to, to a demise of dictatorship. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's, it's, you know, people like me, we viewed, you know, the invasion as a liberation. I understand, you know, it's, it's, it's an, it's, it could open, you know, Pandora box. We can have a big debate about it. But this is also important for people in the United States to understand the views of those who were born on the other side of our curtain. Yeah. Where, you know, anything that led to the collapse of dictatorship was a good idea. So that's why, you know, we, we, we had different views about American presidents, you know, viewing those who were strongest in opposing Soviet Union and, 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 and communism as our best friends. Again, I understand, you know, it's a subject for debate, but let's, you know, move away from 2003 and agreeing that, you know, we may disagree on that and go to 2009. And this is, you know, something that the Obama's decision, you know, uh, to follow, by the way, that was a Bush um, plan, you know, to, to um, uh, eventually move troops out of Iraq. So when in 2009 Obama looked at the global map, you know, I, I, I believe he thought that you know, it was a good moment for America to exercise positive influence, soft power, you know, uh, friendship to even to, to, the, to the nations that, 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 that wished America ill uh, and to, um, you know, extend the olive branch to, to everyone, you know, including uh, Cuba and North Korea. Um, now, the failure, in my view, is based on the fact that if you play the game, you know, in chess, and if you believe that you made a mistake a few moves ago, the biggest mistake, you know, would be to try to sort of to go back and to change things because you're already having a certain situation at, board, at the board. And that's what happened with, with, with Iraq in 2009 when Obama tried to sort of to uh, rectify mistakes made by the previous administration without recognizing that it's already a new game. America was already there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and by trying to get out, you know, uh, led to, to what, 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 uh, what we are seeing, seeing uh, these days in the, in the Middle East. You know, we all know where the road paved with good intentions leads. In this case, it, it led to Aleppo and genocide. So um, it is very important that we learn from these lessons because, you know, it's now uh, uh, what follows Obama is is, is, is much more cynical approach. So if Obama Obama wanted to to cut these deals, you know, out of his ideological beliefs that the world should change, now you may have an administration that would like to cut these deals, you know, out of very pragmatic assumptions that you know that could benefit uh, uh, people who are close to the administration. Mm. So ironically, they could be pursuing the same goals, but for very different, you know, purposes. Um, and uh, um, I think that you know, America. As long as you know it, 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 it remains the um, the most powerful economy and the most powerful military force in, in the world, it's it, it's doomed to to remain the leader of the free world. Thus, you know, carrying these responsibilities for for protecting the world order um, from 
different attempts to to destroy it. Because if America doesn't do anything, then um, what's going to happen to NATO? What's going to happen to uh, European security? Mm. And now we already saw the result in Crimea. And definitely Putin is not going to stop in Crimea. And uh, he is now, you know, willing to uh, willing to to have, you know, a great uh, bargain with, with Trump about about uh, dividing the world and uh, and eliminating um, all security institutions that that were standing on his way to global dominance. So um, uh, I, I think it's very important that America, you know, recovers its, you know, its um, its integrity as the as a global power and will come up with a, a view of the foreign policy, which is, by the way, you saw you saw it in these elections, is somehow extension of domestic policy, policy or other way around, uh, and to um, to stop, you know, um, changing these policies, you know, um, from elections to elections. Mm. Because if from Harry Truman to Ronald Reagan, and that's what I argued in the book, American foreign policy was quite consistent. There were some modifications, but basically all presidents, Democrats and Republicans, they they they, they knew what was America's role in the world. And they, they again, disagreements, they were, you know, within within the reach. Um, now, since 1991, the, the collapse of the of the uh, Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War. So um, we saw American foreign policy um, working uh, more like pendulum, switching from one side to another. You have Clinton, who did little, then a, a, a W, who did too much, then Obama, who did almost nothing. And then now you, you, it, it, it goes to Trump, who can do whatever. Nobody can predict. And it's quite interesting that when you look at the all presidents, you know, uh, were elected, you know, since the collapse of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War in the last 25 years. I think it's the first time in American history that all, the four presidents that were elected, Clinton, uh, Bush, Obama and Trump, they had no foreign policy expertise and very little um, sort of uh, national exposure. OK, Trump had it, but it's not political. Mm. So it's interesting that that's, you know, it's the... Um, it seems that as if Americans are looking for something else, you know, so the country, you know, didn't want to hear about big problems and wanted just to, you know, have a comfortable life. Let's enjoy. And uh, now we reached a point, you know, after these elections that, you know, it's time to define America's role in the world. And uh, I don't believe that uh, the United States has a chance to to stay away and just to isolate since, you know, the world, you know, has changed and very much under American influence. And walking away means that, you know, you will have to come back. But but when it happens, it will be already under the terms of your uh, enemies. Yeah. That final point is really worth reflecting on, because to retreat and to ignore the world's problems when we alone among nations have this disproportionate potential influence to let genocides happen you know, especially in the case of, you know, we draw a red line and the, our bluff gets called and then we do nothing. That kind of weakness is really provocative. And as you say, then once we're dragged back into involvement, it's on the terms that are now on the ground. You know, the pieces on the board, to use your analogy, have, have moved and we're in, in a worse position. And so let's, let's talk about the position we're in with respect to Putin at this point, because it seems to me, and you make this point as well, that he's running a, a very clever dictatorship. It's a dictatorship that, for those who don't want to see it as one, seems to be justified by you know, a high level of support. You know, he holds elections. And he's, he's managed to sanitize his reputation by being taken seriously as a statesman 
on the world stage. And again, you point this out many times that American, many American and European administrations are culpable for this. So this policy of engagement with Putin has given him a free pass to do more or less whatever he's wanted. And of course, this all has been facilitated by a, by a rise in oil prices. But Putin seems like quite a, a sinister figure. How bad is he? It's very bad, and he's getting worse. But, you know, we have to give him credit, and you're right, you know, pointing out at his strengths and his ability to manipulate uh, both domestically and internationally. Uh, he started in, you know, in the beginning of uh, um, this century, so as, as uh, a president of Russia, so whether he had an idea of turning his rule into dictatorship, I don't know. But uh, he, he, he wasn't, he's an opportunist, and he suddenly saw big opportunities. Oil prices, you know, were rising, so giving him, you know, unlimited amount of cash. And also, he just recognized that there was a lot of uh, goodwill on the on the other side. So he could uh, play games with uh, with George W. Bush. It was an amazing, you know, um, psychological game when they met in June um, 2001. Mm. And uh, Putin told him a story about, you know, hiding, you know, cross, you know, um, while, you know, uh, being in a KGB school. So because he was baptized by his grandmother mm-hmm. or whatever. I mean, it's... Obviously, it's a fake story, but you know he he made it was a perfect calculation hmm. for 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 George W. That was a story that almost you know caught you know caused him to cry because it was about religion, so just about affection, about the Putin's connection to religion, and and he built a very strong psychological uh, uh, contact with with George W. Who after his meeting said that he looked into Putin's soul. Uh, uh, looked at the, looked at Putin's eyes and saw his soul. Mm-hmm. So uh, that was a big victory, and Putin strengthened his ties with with George W. by being the first leader calling after 9/11 immediately, recognizing that that was a moment you know where he could you know have uh, uh, Bush you know on his side for many years to come. So uh, he was very good in building these relations and looking for friends because at that time he needed friendship from the Western leaders to neutralize any opposition in Russia. And I remember in 2006 when Putin was hosting the G8 meeting in St. Petersburg, and I was always reluctant to call it G8 because G7 stood for seven great industrial democracies and Russia was neither democracy nor industrial power. Um, but Putin you know, was um, there, you know, um, actually Yeltsin was the first one to be invited, like an an advanced payment for uh, immature Russian democracy. And Putin fully capitalized on his position of being one of the members of G8. And it was his turn in 2006 to host it. And uh, it was a phenomenal uh, um, PR success for Putin because Russian television, you know, um, had uh, was showing these meetings from every angle. And, uh, you know, they say that, you know, picture is more powerful than thousand words, but Putin had both the picture and thousand words. And uh, how could people like myself or late Boris Demsov, how could we convince even, you know, liberal minded Russians that Putin was not a Democrat? Putin was not recognized as Democratic elected leader, while every other leader of the free world was there, you know, to, 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 to greet him as one of the equals. Mm. So Putin, by using this, you know, by using this game, Putin totally neutralized opposition in Russia. And as you pointed out, you know, created an image of, you know, of, of um, a ruler that was not probably, you know, um, a true Democrat, but, you know, he was not one to fear, um, not one who could, you know, who could destroy, you know, democratic institutions. 
and that uh, and that's why his decision to stay behind Medvedev when he following constitution he had to step down but he stayed you know as a prime minister and we all in Russia knew that it was you know he was a puppet master who was pulling the strings uh, it you know it it caused some kind of an illusion uh, for Europe and for the United States where um, politicians political leaders believed that they could play Medvedev against Putin and eventually they could see some kind of a uh, peaceful transition of Russia from Putin's, you know, as as they thought, slightly authoritarian regime into something more democratic. Not recognizing that Putin was buying time uh, um, you know, to um, strengthen his grip on power, and eventually he would come back as the all-powerful dictator, as it happened in in uh, 2012. And then, as every dictator, you know, he had to uh, change gears because if he needed friends in the beginning of his rule. Eventually, he needed enemies because at certain time he realized that all economic um, resources that could uh, generate steady growth of um, Russian GDP and and more, more important um, a steady improvement of uh, living standards for the Russians these resources have been you know have been wiped out by the lower oil prices and also by the aging infrastructure and by endemic corruption. Mm. So economy was no longer serving Putin and he needed something else to legitimize his endless stay in power. And as every dictator, he turned for foreign aggression. As we warned from, from the beginning, saying Putin was our problem, eventually it would be everybody's problem because this is the way dictatorship works. And uh, it was amazing that Americans and Europeans didn't want to see the, 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 the rise of anti-American, anti-Western propaganda on Russian television. Um, and since 2012, it became, you know, a staple of Putin's uh, domestic propaganda to blast America for anything that happens in the world and to in, uh, present Russia as the sort of besieged uh, fortress of good surrounded by global evil. Mm. By the way, they, 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 they use this language. This is, this is the language used by Russian Right, right. Is it true that the level of anti-Americanism in Russia now is is the worst it's ever been? Look, maybe it was worse in the 40s and the 50s. I don't know, but it's definitely it's definitely the worst in my lifetime. Mm. And uh, I can rely on my mother's comments. She's turning 80 next March, uh, so she was born under Stalin. And of course, you know, propaganda machine was, you know, different because, you know, there was no television, there was only radio and then, you know, primitive TV. So it's hard to compare to to, to, to these days. But she said that, you know, by listening to, 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 to Russian media today, um, she couldn't help but uh, thinking that while Soviet propaganda was, you know, was um, very intense and it was brainwashing, but it was still about bright future. So Soviet propaganda tried to present something that is more, you know, um, uh, it's more positive, something, something futuristic that, you know, that, that, that could uh, make a great deal of difference for everybody. So they talked about, of course, it was false talk, but still they talked about, you know, communist brotherhood, you know, generations ahead of us uh, and about, you know, competition between socialism and capitalism and about socialism, you know, so gaining ground. So there was some kind of a competition about uh, 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 fighting for the, for the better future of, of humanity. Putin's propaganda is more like cult of death. Mm. So Russia has no allies. It's all about, you know, Putin defending Russia against global evil. It's, you know, we all maybe have to die, you know, but it's, but it's the language is so 
poisoning. And my mother says it's 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 depressing. Mm. It is so depressing. And, you know, because of modern technology, it comes, you know, as we say in Russia, from every kettle. So it's just <laughs> from, it's from everywhere. So and it's it 24 seven. And uh, and these propaganda, which, you know, just it's it's follows oral rules that, you know, it should be total lies. So it's not just, you know, you know, some true, some lies, but it's basically, you know, it's, it's white as black, you know, war is peace, you know, freedom is slavery. So it's it's totally reversing the facts. And if if it's so intense as as it as it is now, um, you know, it works and it works uh, way beyond Russia now because we could see polls in some European countries where people, you know, ordinary people in, 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 in these countries, they are just buying the Putin versions of the events in, in Ukraine, in, in, in um, uh, Middle East um, and elsewhere. What's the significance of his being a former KGB figure? President Bush Sr. ran the CIA, and I've never heard it said of him that that made him somehow nefarious by definition. Obviously, there's a, a false moral equivalence here, but this is the way many people would think about it. How do you think about his KGB past? Yeah, but you you mentioned his false moral equivalence. I mean, KGB is an organization that you know that I believe you know was was criminal from day one. It was built by Lenin and 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 his uh, associates, you know, to uh, destroy whatever you know was left of freedom in 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 Russia. And it had a history of of going after um, uh, political opponents of the regime, and um, you know it's it's one of the most uh, um, uh, uh, nefarious acronym in the Soviet history, KGB. So these three these three letters. And mm-hmm. Putin in 1999, he, uh, while being still a prime minister, when he spoke at the um, meeting of um, KGB officers at um, the headquarter in Lubanka Square. Um, he said, "Once KGB is always KGB," hmm. and that, you know he couldn't say it's better. You know, it's just it's a recognition of the fact that you know he never you know betrayed his organization, and he always believed that you know they they had some kind of rights you know to to rule the country and just to um, to um, basically they, they were always above the law. So the if we are talking about Bush forty one, who was head of CIA, you know, he was. He was still a civilian, and and uh, even as a, as a head of CIA, you know, he knew that he was uh, under some kind of supervision of the of the legislation and the president. So it's the, there were many things that you know, uh, and still still hopefully there in America, you know, that guarantee checks and balances. So it's you can hardly imagine, you know, one institution in the United States, you know, going just you know totally um, wild. So it's probably. Probably, you know, we'll, we'll still we'll still have to see the resilience of U.S. democracy mm-hmm. in the years to come. But, you know, in in the Soviet Union, it was it was the opposite. So the KGB was always above the law. So it's the whole idea that the organization you know, was the law itself. And uh, and w- while today we're looking at Putin's actions, I always warn people that, you know, you should remember about his his, his true nature. He's a KGB guy. So that's why, you know, while he is not... Um, He's not alien to the idea of using force. He can, you know, decimate cities. He can do. He can order carpet bombing. He can, you know, um, order genocide. But uh, um, but at this, the same time, he always prefers to deal with more clandestine methods. So mm. the um, just looking for kind of hybrid wars and uh, and and every opportunity to buy favors, to blackmail people, to to have a covert operation. And uh, and the fact is that he's. Uh, 
reputation is still quite sanitized, as you just said a few minutes ago, worldwide, is a result of, of, uh, of these operations that have been heavily funded uh, by Putin and, uh, you know, well-designed um, um, uh, adjusting to the certain um, uh, uh, specifics of uh, different countries and, and, uh, and regions. Do you think there's any truth to the rumor that he might be the richest person on earth at this moment? I think we should, you know, we should first agree on the definition of the richest person on earth, because, you know, um, if you mean him being the richest man who can walk away with his money, uh, I doubt. Because, you know, we understand that, you know, uh, whatever happens in U.S. presidential elections, I mean, Bill Gates will be Bill Gates. So the political, mm. uh, even political tsunami in America can is unlikely to um, change his fortune or Warren Buffett's or, you know, even whoever is the president of Mexico, I don't think, you know, it will affect Carlos Slim. Right. Now, Putin, I believe, you know, by the amount of money he controls, he is far ahead of Slim, Buffett and, and, and Gates together because he controls hundreds of billions of dollars since, you know, he's the all-powerful dictator of Russia and the, and, and the Russian budget and Russian hard currency reserves. And, you know, the fortune of many oligarchs, they are somehow, you know, connected to him. He is in charge, mm. which means he can channel the money any way he wants. But this money, you know, is, is, is under his control as long as he is all-powerful dictator. Right. So the moment he loses power, he loses everything. So he is nowhere to go. You may call it a golden cage, you know, whatever. But uh, he is chained to to Kremlin since you know there's no life for him, uh, neither political nor maybe physical life outside of his of his uh, residence in Kremlin. Hmm. I want to spend a little time talking about the problem of moral equivalence here, because obviously you've painted a picture of Putin being a person who's really intrinsically hostile to the interests of freedom-loving people everywhere. But then, obviously, you'll hear from the other side that we have provoked him, you know, that we, by expanding NATO, are responsible for everything that appears to be aggression on his side. And then, during the campaign, there was this really delirious use of a phrase on the Trump side that Hillary Clinton was going to start World War III with Russia for merely suggesting that she was in favor of a no-fly zone in Syria. There's this almost masochistic moment of self-criticism on the side of both the left and the right in the West with respect to Putin's behavior. Can you reflect on that a little bit? Again, this is what you just said is true, and it's very much the result of very successful uh, propaganda. Uh, propaganda operation uh, conducted by by Putin's cronies, agents, and lobbyists in in the free world over years. I mean, let's start with the NATO expansion. This is one of the very popular myths, you know, simply a lie that at one point um, Bush 41 and Jim Baker, you know, promised Gorbachev not to expand NATO. There are no documents to um, to reflect this agreement. Mm. And let's let's start with that. Maybe there was a kind of a conversation. We don't know. But it's just, you know, n never American presidents, you know, um, or European leaders uh, or NATO command uh, did such a pledge. Now, there's also a moral factor, you know, uh, uh, moral weakness in the position of those who say, oh, we, um, we're provoking Russia. I mean, 
This is exactly, you know, playing it in the hands of Putin who wants to go back to the 19th century or maybe early 20th century, the imperial politics, what I call. It's where you have big countries, Russia, America, maybe Germany, maybe the UK, to decide for others. And we decide what happens with other countries. We are, God, for God's sake, we live in 21st century. Are we going to say that people in Estonia, or actually now in Tallinn, or in Latvia, Lithuania, or in Poland, I'm mentioning NATO countries, or in Ukraine, or elsewhere, they have no rights to, to decide their own future? Thanks God, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania are in NATO, because otherwise Russian tanks would be rolling on the streets of Tallinn, Riga, and Vilnius. Mm. And these people experience... I wouldn't call it a genocide, but, you know, it was something close to genocide after you know, it's 50 years of Soviet occupation. And people still here remember that, you know, it's very fresh in genetic memory of, of, the, of people in the Baltic nations. The Poles can tell you a lot about Soviet occupation, as many Eastern European nations. Um, so, um, you know, the whole notion that, you know, we have to decide, you know, how to make Russia happy. It's just, you know, it's, it's, it's placed straight into Putin's hands. Or when I hear talks about Ukraine being a buffer state, why on earth we decide for 45 million Ukrainians, who, by the way, proved to be worse of freedom by fighting against, against Russian invasion, trying to protect their sovereignty, mm. which, by the way, was guaranteed, and now we're talking about documents, by Budapest Memorandum. This is something, again, to refresh the memory of those who forgot about it, or maybe some of your listeners never heard of this document. In 1994, Ukraine signed a memorandum in, 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 in Budapest with the United States, Russia, the, the UK, um, exchanging its nuclear uh, arsenal for its territorial integrity. And Ukrainian nuclear arsenal was not just a joke. It was the third largest nuclear arsenal in the world. Hmm. It's nearly 2,000 nuclear warheads, which is more than China, France, and England combined. So a Russian signature, Boris Yeltsin, which was there under this document, Bill Clinton's signature was on this document, and John Major, of course, uh, of the, prime, the UK prime minister. Of course, it was not a binding document, but the fact is that America, you know, United States pushed Ukraine to give up its, its nukes. By the way, it was a good idea because, you know, uh, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, the, nucle the, 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 um, the nuclear warheads um, were spread between Russia proper and then Ukraine, Belarus, and Kazakhstan, and this... Uh, agreement in in in, in um, uh, Budapest, which eventually joined by Belarus and Kazakhstan, helped to accumulate all the nuclear warheads in Russia, which made it easier, you know, for for um, uh, any um, uh, nuclear negotiations for the future. Hmm. But there was a guarantee to the to Ukrainian to Ukrainian state sovereign state of its borders, and one of the guarantors was Boris Yeltsin. And I could remind, you know, those who uh, thought it was not enough, that every Russian president, including Putin and Medvedev, and every Russian parliament since 1991 signed numerous treaties and 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 uh, um, documents with Ukrainians, uh, never mentioning Crimea as an issue. So for 23 years, you know, the issue wasn't on the table. Mm. So uh, that's why, you know, um, you know, when you were talking about provoking people, uh, provoking Russia by sort of being sensitive to people's demands, whether it's Ukraine, Poland, Baltics, or other countries, uh, for freedom and for their, you know, for the, the desire to um, restore their sovereignty. Again, it's, you're pushing us back to the past. You are ignoring the fact that people are, you know, equal and uh, small nations must have uh, uh, their voice when it when it's uh, it concerns it's their own freedom and and uh, uh, sovereignty. Mm. And um, speaking about NATO expansion, 
you know, there's, there's certain facts, you know, that, that totally refutes, you know, the whole idea that NATO was building, you know, something that was threatening to Russia. By year 2013, there was not a single American tank in Europe. And I should, you know, emphasize it. Not a single American tank. And people understand that tanks, those are, you know, the, 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 um, the forces, they're the, the, the part of military that, that could advance. This is if you want to attack, you need tanks. So it's uh, NATO troops, you know, that were not even near a uh, 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 Russian, bo- Russian border. Um, and uh, only now after Crimea the, uh, and uh, after numerous requests from the Baltic states and from Poles, you know, uh, several hundred Americans and other NATO troops, you know, have been uh, the decision to station them. Uh, near Russian border, but obviously, you know, this is again, it's a they're very small contingents, and it's happened after Crimea. So before Crimea, for thousand kilometers, you know, mm-hmm. west of Russia, there were no NATO soldiers that could, you know, could pose any potential threat to to to, to Russian interest. Uh, yes, there were there was an anti-missile system, American, but it was clearly, you know, aimed at, at dealing with potential Iranian threat, and it was in, totally insufficient to uh, prevent, God forbid, you know, in case of nuclear Armageddon, Russian uh, uh, ballistic missiles uh, uh, from crossing, crossing the continent and reaching the United States. Mm. So uh, I'm happy to talk about facts. I'm happy to talk about concepts. But I'm, I, I'm afraid that we are now, uh, where we are in just, you know, thinking in, this, in, the, in the swamp of, of, of lies and, 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 and myth. Mm. Uh, widely promoted and distributed by, by, by Kremlin's propaganda. It seems clear, even though no one wants to think about it, nuclear weapons really change everyone's calculation about what sorts of conflicts are even conceivable. And I think there's a default assumption. I never hear it articulated, but there's this assumption that we can't have any conventional military engagement with Russia because that puts us on this slippery slope toward Armageddon. And that was that was the fear that I you certainly heard expressed about Hillary Clinton's foreign policy during the election. And I guess I guess this also extends to any explicit cyber warfare or a response to the meddling of Russia in our election that would be deemed too strong. You know, if we began to act aggressively against Putin, even the other oligarchs, I mean, let's say they have assets abroad that we could freeze, right? I think people begin to worry that the big bombs will start to fall in response to this. So in light of that concern, I mean, what do you think we should have done over Crimea, for instance, when that was annexed or, or any of these other provocations? Look, you know, I agree that you know, the, the uh, nuclear bombs have changed you know, the uh, calculations over any, any military conflict. But uh, unfortunately, the, the rhetoric that, that you, you mentioned now it's resonates with the 30s. Of course, there, were no, there was no nuclear, no, there was no threat of nuclear Armageddon at that time. But we remember that uh, um, public opinion in the United Kingdom, in France, even in, 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 in the United States, was dead against another military conflict. So the people still remembered, you know, the World War One, and nobody wanted another confrontation with Germany over some countries uh, uh, in, in, in the east of Europe. So some countries, as I think Chamberlain said, uh, the ordinary Englishman couldn't find on the map. Uh, the problem, you know, when you're dealing with dictators, you know, that, um, you know, they don't ask why, they always ask why not, and that they don't stop unless they stop. So um, you could think that Crimea is far away, you know, as many Europeans thought, oh, Syria was far away. 
what is Syrian conflict has, has to do had to do with our uh, with our security, with our uh, prosperity, with safety of our houses, and with with our political system. In fact, it had you know it it had a huge impact on European political life because refugees, you know, the millions of refugees that that, that were fleeing to Europe, they changed the, the political balance by enabling Putin's uh, best allies in Europe, the ultra-nationalist groups in Europe, to gain more popularity and to weaken the mainstream political parties. This is a result of the war that was, you know, a couple of thousand miles away. Now, Crimea, it was just, you know, an invitation for Putin to move, you know, beyond, you know, established borders after 1945. There was, you know, there was a world that, that we used to live in after World War II that, you know, had borders, and we all knew that these borders, you know, must not be touched because, you know, this is something that guaranteed, you know, the security and, and peace. And uh, Putin basically, you know, just erased all these arrangements by, you know, starting from the scratch, saying, you know, I can take whatever I believe is mine. Now, you think that it's just far away, but, you know, it's just, it's, it has nothing to do with you, but you understand that in 2016, Putin had, you know, Putin's propaganda, Putin's cronies, Putin's lobbyists, Putin's agents, they had an impact in U.S. elections by actually pushing a candidate that he thought would be more appropriate for his plans of global dominance. Now, the whole story about Hillary Clinton, you know, ready to start World War III came directly from Russian television, which was kind of amazing. But many times during the campaign and even afterwards, Donald Trump repeated uh, um, assumptions that were first, you know, circulated on Russian television. Hmm. So um, Hillary Clinton was a politician uh, with experience. Uh, I think she made terrible mistake with this doomed reset, reset this failed reset button that he pushed with the Russian Foreign Minister Lavrov. But I'm sure she learned from her mistakes. And uh, I was not a fan. And, uh, you know, the reason I supported her in, during this campaign, because I thought Trump was much worse. But, you know, having having choice between those two politicians, I... I had no hesitation because for me, as I said, you know, um, it was not supporting Hillary, but supporting sanity. Mm. And uh, many American presidents dealt with the threat of nuclear Armageddon. You know, Harry Truman faced Joseph Stalin, not Vladimir Putin, Joseph Stalin. And please don't tell me that Stalin was, you know, uh, was less dangerous and less, uh, and less powerful than Vladimir Putin. Uh, John F. Kennedy faced... Uh, um, Khrushchev, and that was the, probably the height of Soviet um, uh, sort of space power. So this is Soviet Union was on the rise, and and again after being weak on Cuba, Kennedy eventually showed strength, and Soviets backed off, as in you know Stalin backed off from West Berlin, and Ronald Reagan faced Soviet Union in Afghanistan, and uh, you know it was you know he called it evil empire, and you know he he you know uh, continued the policies by institutions established and built by Harry Truman. And it, you know, it led to a to, to, to victory in the Cold War. Trying to sort of to appease a dictator, especially at a time when he already, you know, um, crossed all, all the red lines and he burned all the bridges, it's just simply, you know, to, in, to uh, incite his appetite. And for Putin, what's, what, you know, the lack of proper reaction in Crimea, and his war in eastern Ukraine, and um, led to that led to um, his um, adventure in Syria. It was all, you know, a demonstration of weakness. And eventually, he thought about, you know, um, having global influence, um, sort of spreading uh, his uh, his propaganda and and um, 
influencing as he hoped um, the result of, of the elections because American you know election was not the first one when he exercises power you can look at Europe and uh, Putin's Putin's cronies Putin's lobbyists they have been very active in, mm. in promoting his agenda and we look at the European political map now uh, Angela Merkel is just you know is the sort of the last stronghold of common sense and sanity in Europe because I I have very little, you know, uh, expectations for France, you know, since most likely it will be fight between François Fillon, who is Putin's friend, and Marine Le Pen, who is on mm. Putin's payroll. Mm. Okay, so given everything you've just said about Putin, what are we to make of the fact that Donald Trump hasn't said a single negative word about him? I mean, is he, is he just totally clueless, or is he focused on his business interests, or does, do you think the Russian government actually has something over him? I mean, how do you interpret this? Because this is, for a Republican presidential candidate, this is deeply inscrutable, surprising, really, really unthinkable behavior, I mean, given where we've come from. And, and this is now, it has infected the entire Republican Party. There's a poll result I'm looking at here where in 2014, just 10% of Republicans held a favorable view of Putin. And that moved to 24% in September, and it's now at 37%. So this is clearly in response to some of the propaganda you, you have described. But we're talking about the Republicans. And this is the party of Reagan, the quintessential Cold Warrior. And now we have an incoming president who has surrounded himself with people linked to Putin, people linked to Gazprom, the state-controlled natural gas company, and to other Russian oligarchs. So. Just how scary is this situation when we're talking about this seeming alliance between Donald Trump and Putin himself and some of his closest cronies? Now, during the campaign, at the very end of the campaign, I think that's once I, you know, I had many interviews, and I think I had once on Fox, you know, when, you know, I was attacked for defending Hillary Clinton. And I said, you know, the, this, this is one good thing about Hillary Clinton. I can tell you, I know exactly how bad she was. Mm. Yeah, you know, we knew about foundation, we knew about emails, but I mean, we knew everything. So, yeah, I, yeah, as I said, I was not a fan. So, and I believed that many of the things that she did, they were wrong. But, but the problem with Donald Trump that we don't know how bad he is. We have no idea. I mean, this is, and that that worries me mo more than everything. So, if we start with the facts, you know, you know, throughout the campaign, he failed. Or you say he didn't want to criticize Putin, and he um, he had many opportunities at the debates or at his rallies or at his interviews to denounce Putin. He didn't do that. And uh, for somebody who flip flopped on almost every major issue to be so consistent, I mean that's that's again that's a sign of uh, some kind of um, you know connection. We don't know exactly the connection, but again that's that's the biggest problem of all. And I was, you know, I, I was surprised that Democrats didn't push hard enough to um, force Trump to uh, reveal his uh, taxes, because we don't know who and how saved Donald Trump from his last bankruptcy in 2008, 2009. There was a, an infusion of, of foreign capital. How much uh, uh, of this capital ca uh, came from Russia? And in fact, you know, it's, it's amazing that many Republicans, they are now trying to pretend that it, does, it, 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 it doesn't matter, you know, uh, whether 
president of the United States owes money to foreign powers. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's Russia, maybe it's China, but definitely as, as a real estate developer, he owes money to, to some corporations. And we don't know his taxes. We don't know, by the way, we don't know the size of his empire. He says he's a billionaire. Some people say, no, it's a fake. You know, it's, he talks about his name, you know, having a massive value, probably it has now. Uh, but in fact, he's, you know, he's, his real wealth is hundreds of millions of dollars. Again, it's all about speculations. But unless we know exactly how much money, you know, is, 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 is worth today, you know, what kind of, you know, money owes to foreign powers, to foreign corporations. I mean, we are just, you know, entering the era of conflict of interest, you know, which is more typical for Russia. Because this is, you know, this is a problem of states run by oligarchs when you don't know when the government ends and the business begins or other way around. Yeah. So, um, and the fact is that, you know, some prominent Republicans pretend that it doesn't matter bothers me a lot. You know, I mean, it's a lot of the things that Donald Trump said, you know, during the debate bothered me because it's amazing that the party, as I said, of Ronald Reagan, you know, uh, now is just, it's, it's, it's ready to oppose a free trade. But I want to brush aside ideology right now. I want to concentrate on the conflict of interest and especially on the potential influence of the hostile foreign power in the U.S. presidential elections. Again, I'm shocked, you know, that is uh, that's many Republican um, senators um, are just, you know, opposing the idea of, of full investigation of, of uh, Russian hacking because we understand Russia played the role. Again, I can accept the, 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 um, the um, statement that it was not decisive, uh, though, when you're talking about elections decided by less than 100,000 votes in three states, and when the winning candidate actually lost nationwide elections, mm. you know, by nearly three million votes. So, you know, you have to investigate because, you know, the fact is that Putin tried to influence the elections, tried. I don't know whether it was total success for him, but he definitely tried. And we could see the WikiLeaks, you know, uh, releasing the uh, Clinton's emails and portions and, and the fake news industry. And we're talking about industry. This is not a fake news about, you know, Kardashians, you know, or just, you know, some pop stars. It's, it's a fake news industry that, that promoted a cause, a political cause. And they were very good in creating the fake conservative sites, you know, creating stories and, and making sure that people, you know, could be reached again. When you're talking about, you know, less than 100,000 people that, you know, that decided elections in three states, it probably had an effect. Again, we don't know the size of the effect, but it did have an effect. And Putin was not even hiding the fact that he was there. And by the way, one of the reasons that Putin, you know, was so persistent in, in, in trying to influence his elections was, was one of the Obama's phrases that, again, that's, for me, it was a best proof that Obama never realized the true nature of dictatorships. When I think it was in, in uh, uh, when addressing the nation um, in uh, the speech of the union, I think Obama called Russia regional power. Mm. Now, you know, while Dili was a dictator, never insult him, you know, never, never talk big by doing nothing or little. So because it's an invitation for dictator to actually prove you're wrong. And I remember that uh, Russian foreign minister, um, uh, Sergei Lavrov, while giving an interview to Christian Amanpour on CNN, uh, he said with a wry smile, oh, it's when she was, he was asked about uh, Russian intervention, you know, meddling with elections, he said with a wry smile, ah, oh, it's so flattering for regional power to be blamed for uh, interfering in the U.S. elections. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's so, um, 
Yes, you know, it's, it's the, the, the very assumption that Putin was not, you know, um, informed about uh, this hacking is just, you know, it's 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 it, it's a denial of reality. In 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 country like Russia, dictator, all powerful dictator, especially a guy coming from KGB, was one to authorize such massive clandestine operation against the United States. And uh, again, we saw um, regular. Um, uh, claims, you know, um, from Russian television. Again, it, it, it addressed Russian-speaking audience, but obviously these stories, you know, were translated and, and spread around uh, the United States and the rest of the world, uh, repeating the same stories about Hillary Clinton being a candidate, you know, being a hawk, being a danger, someone who would uh, start a nuclear war with Russia, while Donald Trump, you know, could be a man who would uh, uh, restore good relations between uh, uh, Russia and the United States. And I was asked many times, you know, after the elections, you know, so what's wrong about it if Trump wanted to have good relations with Russia? And my response is having good relations with any other country is fine. The problem is that before you build relations with dictators, and that's, by the way, also criticism of Obama, uh, you have to reassure your allies. Mm. And Trump, you know, uh, by definition, Trump, you know, poses such a threat to the established world order. And that's probably one of the reasons Putin liked him. Even if we assume there's, there were no other connections, there was, there was nothing tangible that Putin could hold that could compromise Trump. But even you know, Trump as an individual could be a perfect agent of chaos, something that Putin is looking for as a counterpart, somebody who would treat Crimea as the sort of hostile takeover of the lucrative piece of real estate, somebody who would look for NATO and, and, and small NATO countries as potentially bargaining chips for, for uh, uh, another big deal a massive deal that could uh, change the face of, of, of uh, this planet. And uh, the fact is that Trump, you know, um, picked uh, um, Rex Tillerson as his secretary of state mm, yeah. and just re reassures, uh, um, so reaffirms all these fears. And by the way, Trump said, you know, the Rex um, was very good in, 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 in um, uh, conducting these massive deals. Now, what kind of massive deal the Secretary of State is 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 planning to to cut? It's you know I thought you know this it's Secretary of State is a top American diplomat representing the free world, uh, the the leader of the free world, not someone who is going to make you know deals based on oil or or other national uh, uh, natural resources. Um, and um, you know we we know that if Putin if Putin had his his choice of Secretary of State, I have no doubt he would pick up Rex Tillerson as number one on the list, because we, Tillerson had built very strong relations with, with Putin, with Igor Sechin, the head of Rosneft, Russian the biggest oil company, state-owned company, and Putin's uh, closest confidant. And he called them friends. And it's and I, I'm also troubled by, by comments from uh, um, some of uh, leading you know, um, Republicans saying, oh, being friendly, it's not that being friends. I mean, don't play semantics. You know, he called Sechin friend. And... Uh, I don't know many, you know, if you help me, uh, of any American businessman receiving the order of friendship from Vladimir Putin. Mm -hmm. And that was a demonstration of Putin's personal ties, because this is not the highest award and Putin doesn't have to do it himself. But it was very important to demonstrate it, uh, that uh, Tillerson was very close to Putin personally. Tillerson has been lobbying the, um, the lifting of sanctions. Yeah, um, and now we recently found out that he was in a director of the offshore company in Bahamas with Igor Sechin. Um, and then when you look at at uh, Trump's uh, pick for um, 
Secretary of Commerce, uh, uh, Wilbur Ross. It's uh, another big business, a, a billion euro business with Vexelberg, another Russian oligarch. Even Flynn had some connection with... Now, Flynn, Flynn, Flynn connection is, is another story because, it, yes, Flynn flew to Moscow. He was sitting next to Putin. He was paid to be at this event. Uh, I didn't like what Flynn has been saying. And obviously, you know, having him as the uh, national security advisor, you know, uh, definitely, you know, um, you know, encourages Putin because Flynn was always, you know, promoting this... Uh, uh, fake idea of, of fighting ISIS uh, uh, together with Russians. But as for Tillerson and, 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 and Ross, you know, they had business connect ties, yeah. close business ties with Russian oligarchs. And uh, how are they going to, to defend U.S. national interest? I mean, it seems to me that the, the, the very idea of conflict of interest is alien for Trump's administration. And uh, I hope that eventually, you know, Democrats will get their act together and will ha- they will have enough support among Republicans, rank and files, to actually, you know, raise the issue. Because, look, Trump is Trump, but, you know, it's we have to be sure that, you know, his administration will not, you know, will not privatize U.S. Is- US uh, govern- governmental institutions and will not, you know, treat uh, U.S. Uh, uh, um, f- foreign policy Treaties America signed, you know, American allies as uh, as this element of this great of, of the new grand bargain. I've given up trying to reach true supporters of Trump with with argument at this point. I came out prior to the election very hard against Trump on this podcast, and I have I think encountered the the limits of persuasion on this point. But I think it would be interesting if any Trump fans are still listening to this podcast for them to consider. Just what what the world would look like at this moment with the opposite result. So just imagine Hillary Clinton had won, and she had won with the seeming help of Putin, and then she just stacked her cabinet with people who had direct ties to the oligarchs, and she refused to say a single negative word about Putin, no matter what the context right? How would the Republicans have responded at this point to this? It's hard to see that they would be so sanguine. You you would not have Republicans getting on CNN talking about the difference between being friends and being friendly. I think one could well imagine that we would have something like a national emergency, given how strongly the Republicans would seek to pull the brakes here. And yet we're just kind of meandering toward the inauguration without any real grappling with the implications here. And again, we simply don't know what we don't know, but there's, there is something truly scary about how Trump has proceeded here. And as you said, he has, he has not hesitated to complain about both sides of any given issue. He'll change on a dime and express seemingly appropriate criticism of something once he's taken the wrong side of it. And he'll, you know, he'll talk out of both sides of his mouth about seemingly everything Except, except this issue. Yep. Except this issue, yes. Um, and, uh, you, know, um, you know, when we talk about sort of Russian hacking, meddling in U.S. elections, and, uh, and can we hear, you know, words, oh, show us the proof, you know, what is the data? And it's, it's also, it's, it's, um, 
it's quite amazing to hear from Republicans, you know, sort of denial of validity of CIA report mm. and then FBI and other intelligence agencies. Um, but, you know, it's this if you look for a potential crime, you know, you, you definitely look for a motive, for an opportunity and for a pattern. And all three are here. We know the motive. We know the opportunity. You know, the, it's, they have been using WikiLeaks, you know, and, and all the, f- the fake news stories, you know, just to, to discredit Hillary Clinton. Yes, I believe that 90%, maybe 95% of the, of the, of the stories that, that were released by WikiLeaks, you know, related to her true emails. But how do we know that some of these emails were not doctored, you know, just slightly adjusted? Because it's it's all virtually impossible to actually to to find out you know what everything was 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 authentic. Most of this, yes, of course, was authentic, and they they used it very um, uh, uh, professionally. Presumably, they didn't doctor John Podesta's risotto recipe. No, okay, yes, <laughs> yeah, uh, and also the pattern, and that's for me. This is the most you know the most important thing. They have been doing it across Europe, right. Okay, you don't trust CIA, you don't trust FBI. What about German intelligence? What about Swedish intelligence? What about Estonians? What about every almost every other European country where they have been, you know, uh, they have been crying loud that you know the Russian you know hackers have been trying to steal documents from the most secretive files, trying to undermine political process, trying to sort of compromise uh, mainstream politicians. This is a pattern. So you have a motive, you have opportunity, you have a pattern, and you know. Uh, I'm not uh, from um, CSI, you know, but in this case, the benefit of the doubt goes to CIA. Yeah, yeah. Listen, Gary, we've we've now terrified everyone just in time for the holidays. <laughs> Let's touch another topic, which yeah. is also terrifying in, in the right hands. Unless you have any more you need to say about... No, no, no. It's this, no but it, this is the, the last thing I want to say that is just, you know, it's the... Um, I don't understand, you know, that some people are saying, give him a chance, Trump a chance. Let's mm-hmm. wait and see. And I, again, I, I always, again, I'm willing to give a benefit of the doubt. But in this case, you know, I want to hear you know, something more concrete. And I believe we must push Trump and his administration to denounce Putin, to, I mean, to go strong, you know, in defending U.S. national interests. Yeah, and unless we hear the statements, you know, I mean, trust me, you know, you'd better be loud now than you know, than you know, screaming in your, in your jail cell. So just you know, make sure that you know we are now we are now uh, making this 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 case public and forcing administration and you know many other Republicans, you know, in the Senate and in the Congress, just in just across this land, uh, to to react because at the end of the day, it's not about Trump, it's not about Hillary Clinton, it's about the first case of of. Uh, um, a host of hostile foreign power, you know, maybe trying, maybe, you know, changing the results of the elections. It doesn't matter. It was an attack, attack on an American political system, an attempt to undermine the integrity of the political process of the United States. You know, you may call it an aggression. And uh, if you let it go, trust me, they will not stop. Dictators do not stop until, until they're stopped. Yeah, yeah. If there's one point of contact between what we were just talking about and this, the new topic of artificial intelligence, it is this issue of the increasing significance of cyber espionage and cyber warfare. I think until we get a handle on internet and information security, we are quite clearly in a position of, of asymmetric disadvantage. We are the prime target for every regime on earth. And in terms of their abilities to bring the relevant talent to bear against us, it seems virtually unlimited. You, you don't need to be even a Russia 
to successfully cause chaos for the U.S., whether it's in the private sector or whether the government. I mean, we clearly have to get a handle on that. Now, just to come to your unique experience here. Now, chess is this this much mythologized game. It's it's really a kind of a quintessential intellectual activity, but it's it's actually a fairly simple one in a way, and similar to the way that music and, and mathematics can be simple. And this is one of the reasons why you have you know child prodigies in in these areas, and and you don't have child prodigies in novel writing or political debate or any other area that is intellectual in, in a different sense. And this is one of the reasons why chess was one of the first things to fall to artificial intelligence. So I, I just want to ask you briefly about your experience there. Now, you, you won against Deep Blue in 1996, but then lost in 97, but it was very close, if I'm not mistaken. And I'm just wondering, how did this affect you personally? I mean, did you find this intellectually interesting or just an insult or what, what, what was that like? It's a long story, so I could recommend your audience, you know, just to wait for my new book that is coming out in four months, mm, right. Deep Thinking, that will uh, be released in the beginning of May next year for the 20th anniversary of my second match with Deep Blue. And thank you for reminding people that I won the first match in Philadelphia in 96, mm-hmm. because everybody <laughs> seemed forgetting this fact. Right, right. And, and then, you know, I was quite upset that IBM, you know, didn't want to play the third match, you know, the rubber match, and to give me a chance to sort of improve um, uh, my, my, my chess. Um, it's, uh, of course, it's a painful story. You know, it's a painful story because, you know, it's, as, as you correctly stated, so I would be, you know, um, one entering history. So um, yeah, as, as, as the um, uh, chess champion, Someone represented humanity in in in, uh, in the era of intellectual pursuit and uh, was beaten by the machine. So um, I waited 20 years, and there, there are three chapters of my new book to this match. Actually, the the book is about man and machine. Mm. So it's the it's um, it's where machine intelligence ends and human creativity begins. Because for me, it's a much bigger picture. So, and and the reason I wanted to write the book is not just you know to sort of settle old scores, you know, by uh, uh, writing about about the match and giving my my version of what's happened then, but it's just to to demonstrate that you know we should not be you know we should not be paralyzed by this dystopian vision of the future. So yeah, um, you know, worrying about killer AI and the super intelligent robots is like worrying about overcrowding on Mars. Mm. So we um, we should look at it from a different perspective, and that's why after the match, you know, I I, I looked for the opportunity, you know, just to um, work with the machines. If you cannot beat them, join them. Yeah. So uh, and that's why I came up with a, with a version of um, what I call advanced chess, man plus machine versus man plus machine. So how to couple uh, the uh, human power of creativity and machine brute force of calculation. Mm. So how to improve our decision making formula and. Uh, it's, you know, while being, you know, in the speaker, uh, speaker circuit, you know, I know it's a great demand now. People want to know more about it because now um, AI is threatening uh, white-collar jobs. Though it's the, um, before, you know, for decades, centuries, probably millennials, machines have been gradually replacing uh, blue-collar jobs, but, you know, they didn't have the same effect on people writing articles and, 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 uh, um, uh, and books. Yeah. So now we we could feel that you know machines you know are entering a very different area uh, of area of human intellect, and we all well really really worried. Um, yeah, and just having you know, a few more words about the matches that um, 
So um, uh, while writing the book, I learned new facts. I did a lot of research, you know, analyzing the games with modern computers and uh, also soul, ser- uh, soul searching, and and I changed my conclusions. So is the I'm not ri- uh, writing any love letters to IBM, but my respect for the Deep Blue team went up, and my opinion of my own play, and by the way, Deep Blue's play went down. Hmm. So you'll find out that I mean, Deep Blue won the match. Uh, though, of course, you know, psychological atmosphere of the match was um, not very um, friendly to a human player. But again. Just read the book, and uh, I thought it was just you know an important um, uh, opportunity for me to sort of to tell my side of the story. But again, I'm looking into the future, and um, uh, I think that chess you know still offers a unique feel, uh, unique opportunity, like a, uh, being a field where you can um, uh, look at the you know man-machine cooperation, mm. because I think the future belongs to man plus machine humans plus machine uh, decision-making um, uh, cooperation. And uh, uh, we have, you know, pretty good experience in the game of chess, how to, how to um, enhance this form, of, this form of cooperation. So how much better are computers now by themselves? Are, are there computers that, or computer programs that you couldn't get a game off of that would just beat you a thousand games to nothing? Have they advanced that much? Well, first of all, yeah, let's, let's you know, let's uh, uh, explain to the to, 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 to your audience that is, it's today you can buy uh, a chess engine put in your laptop uh, that will beat the blue, you know. Right. Again, not maybe not, it's not thousand zero because it's, but it's quite easily. Uh, now, playing a machine today, it's it's almost. It's some kind of redundancy because uh, no, I will not lose all the games. There will be some draws, so I will mm. definitely probably survive in a few games. But the problem uh, that humans are facing by playing machines is that um, we are not consistent. We, we we don't have a steady hand to sort of to play under this pressure because our games are always you know they 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 always marked by you know good and bad moves. And when I say bad moves. It's not about a blunt, making a blunder. It's just about inaccuracies. Right. Our play, our play is uneven, and any any inaccuracy, you know, that in in, in human chess, human versus human, you know, very often, you know, re- remains unnoticed. You know, could could be most damaging when you're facing the machine. So um, it's 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 about our ability to sort of play for a play, you know, um, high quality moves. Uh, for hours, because again, we even if we're reaching a good position, so we we inevitably we, we get complacent. So um, they, the human psychology actually works against us. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, that, that that's why that's why, for instance, you know, if um, if I have a machine, even a weak computer on my side, facing much more powerful machine, the chances, you know, uh, uh, the, the the table could could could, could be turned. I could be, uh, uh, I could have a great chance of winning. Most likely, probably a strong GM with with machine assistance. Even not a very strong machine will beat uh, 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 a very powerful computer. Because if I get, you know, if if I reach a good position, I don't have to play anymore. I just switch to the machine, or I can guide the machine. So I could, I definitely eliminate blunders. I eliminate so the the uh, the very um, uh, root of human weakness while facing the computer. So that's why, and you know, I'm, I'm I'm promoting the idea of of um, 
uh, of uh, combining our forces because also something that is probably it's also requires an explanation um, because machine learning is great but it's fueled by more and more data but the quality jump from say 10,000 pieces of data to 10 million might be huge but then to 10 billion not so much because we are you know sort of we are uh, reaching the, par the paradox of diminishing returns mm. yeah and also you know it's the let's say self-driving cars uh, or surgery. So 90% of accuracy is fine for uh, translating a news article. It's right. good enough, yeah? 90% accuracy for driving a car? That's a bad day on the road. <laughs> yeah, even 99%? Yeah, so, so it's the, no, I think we just, you know, what I'm trying to explain in this book, you know, it's more like, you know, it's, um, it's that those things are inevitable. You know, we are entering this era and there's nothing, you know, just, you know, to, there's nothing definite about it. Yeah. It's just, it's not, you know, that the outcome is already decided. As I said, you know, just, we are, in the last, you know, few decades, we moved from utopian sci-fi to dystopian sci-fi. So we always see machines like, like uh, Matrix or Terminator. No, it's, it could be, but, you know, it's very much depends on us, on our attitude and on our ability to come up with some, you know, um, some uh, new ideas. You know, uh, because, you know, it's the, um, the machines, you know, they're quite, you know, quite good in just in, 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 uh, um, in, in, in helping us or actually, you know, exploring the known. They can do the known, but not the unknown. So that's why, you know, what is left for us is actually to come up with new ideas, new industries, space exploration, something where, you know, we, we, we always push the borders, push the frontiers. And then, you know, then the machines, you know, they, they will have to learn from us. So we, it's probably a good, a, a good new challenge for us to prove that we're not, you know, we're not redundant. Yeah. So yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm always, um, you know, I'm always optimist because I believe, you know, that this what we invent always, you know, uh, is, is good because it pushes us, you know, uh, to look for sort of higher grounds. So it hadn't occurred to me to ask this question, but chess is the canary in the coal mine in at least two senses. There's the first victory over a human. You have a chess engine that's just unambiguously better than any person on Earth now. I assume that's a safe assumption. Is it still true to say, as you just suggested, that a combined human-computer chess team is better than any single computer at chess at this moment? I mean, would you, with, the, with a great oh, chess engine, no, beat? Uh, it's, it's, oh, yeah, it's, it has been proven already in several experiments. Right. I can tell you more, you know, from uh, experiments of what we call freestyle chess, you know, where you can play on the internet and it's, it's open for cheating. Basically, any form of chess is 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 is, is allowed. Hmm. So you can play with computer, with several computers. So we know that uh, a team of uh, average players, you know, that can master uh, several computers will beat a strong player with strong computer. The process will uh, be superior over, you know, potential quality of understanding. Right. And uh, machines, machines. The most powerful machines stand no chance against a human-machine combination. That's very interesting, and but it strikes me that that is that is a mere temporary conquest on what seems the inevitable progression to a more powerful computer. Aren't you anticipating a time where the introduction of of human judgment into the game of chess will be, by definition, a diminishing of the power of the system that really that the you really have to get the ape out of the conversation to play the best possible chess look uh, 
chess is mathematically infinite game. Technically, you can put numbers on, 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 on paper, but it's a number of legitimate positions is 10 power 45. Yeah. So um, uh, machines will never get to the bottom. So that's why you don't expect machine playing, you know, first move and, you know, uh, uh, declaring mate in 15,375 moves. So it's the, the game is still, you know, full of mysteries. But obviously at a certain point, you know, you can reach, you know, um, uh, a position uh, where, you know, um, a machine could, um, could see sort of the forced win or forced draw. Uh, but most of the in most of uh, uh, of the positions, in most of the cases, in the middle of the chess game, you know they they are far from uh, from um, sort of a decided conclusion. So that's why you know you have to um, use your understanding. You have to you know you still need some kind of they um, call it common sense mm. uh, um, uh, to um, look for the best move. So and uh, and I think that it's uh, the these this um, experiment this experiment could go way beyond the game of chess, the chessboard, because they will will while doing some new things. Again, let's go back to space exploration. I'm sure we'll be will be uh, bumping into situations where uh, machine may not be able to come up with um, with a with the right answer, since you know um, the situation will be brand new. There, there, there were not enough information. From its memory to analyze to come up with the with a rational conclusion and the and the human uh, human intervention human common sense human ability to look for one or two options but but recognizing the pattern might be crucial. Yeah, yeah. Well, listen, this this is a fascinating area that is is not going away. I, we probably disagree in some of our assessments of just how concerned we should be about overpopulation on Mars, but I think I'll I'll I'll, I'll leave that. <laughs> I'm going to leave that for our next conversation, which we will have hopefully when your new book comes out, because this is one of the great stories of our time. And I'm, I'm very, I didn't know you, you had a book on this topic coming, and I, I can't wait to see it. And it is also, it's got to be at least midnight or, or later where you are now. It's actually 11 o'clock here, but, uh, you know, um, uh, I, I used to live, you know, with like universal yeah, time. Right. <laughs> right. Just, yeah, I, I, I travel probably too much, so that's why, you know. It's a, uh, it's a, uh, I'm always, people ask me if I'm, you know, jet lagged. I said, no, I never jet lagged because I'm always yeah, jet lagged. Yeah. <laughs> well, listen, it's, it's really been a pleasure, Gary. Thank you very much. I hope to meet you in person next time. Yes, absolutely. Please take care and please keep making noise on the topic that we, that we spoke about because. Look, you can hardly blame me for being silent. <laughs> you are a, a unique <laughs> perspective and so many people are going silent. Thank you. It's like the film, The Invasion of the Body Snatchers. People are no longer making reasonable noises on the topic. So to be continued, my friend. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.